One of the most important things I've learned about ticks is that they can be found in many different habitats, including forests, city parks, and school grounds. When it comes to avoiding ticks, awareness and prevention are the first line of defense for adults, children, and animals. Dr. Becky Trout Frixel is a medical and veterinary entomologist, researcher, and associate professor at the University of Tennessee. She specializes in vector control, surveillance, ecology, and genetics. We reached her in Knoxville, Tennessee. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Becky. Thank you for having me. How did you become interested in veterinary entomology and pathogen surveillance? You know, it started off when I was at the University of Kentucky as an undergraduate and a graduate student. There were some little tiny caterpillars called Eastern tent caterpillars that were causing mare reproductive loss syndrome with horses. And um, basically a bunch of these horses and foals were aborting and dying. And I was just fascinated with the idea that something so small could take out something so big. And so From there, I've really been looking at mosquitoes, ticks and flies, all of these things that are affecting humans and animals and trying to help protect them. Wow. And so maybe we can just tell our audience a bit more about that. What is a vector? So a vector, um, so we can think of vector in many different ways. When I teach it in the classroom, I always ask my math students, you know, what a vector is. And we think of it as that angle that moves something from A to B. And that's really what it is. So it's an arthropod that bridges um, spatially and temporally a pathogen from point A to point B. And so um, in my world, it's a mosquito, a tick, or a fly. (laughs) And so let's talk a little bit more about ticks and what makes them unique and how they attach to hosts. What is a hypostome? Okay, so the hypostome is the mouth part of a tick. It's barbed, kind of similar to a bee's um, stinger is barbed so that it can't come out. Um, But the hypostome is the part of the tick that actually attaches to you and um, creates a little cement layer to actually glue itself to you and allows for that blood feeding to occur between um, the individual, the host, and the tick. And what are festoons and how are they used to identify different tick species? So festoons are on the I'm kind of like the posterior end of the tick. Um, I like to think of them as like the little buttons or the jewels on ticks. So, you know, festoons on military uniforms and more. Um, But we use those to identify a a variety of different tick species as well. And so you can find them a lot on the male ticks, um, kind of at the the very bottom of their idiosoma, which is the back part of the tick. I should say that. Sorry. Interesting. (laughs) What are some of the common some of the common myths that you hear, and how do you educate people about the real facts? Oh, I love <laughs> some of the myths that I've um, heard. Uh, some of them um, we've been able to um, just kind of show people that it's not necessarily true. So one of the ones that I always tease one of my really good friends here at the University of Tennessee about is that ticks like to jump out of trees and <laughs> land on them. And um, him and I went back and forth a whole lot about it. And he, you know, has years of experience on me in the forest. And he decided to, decided that I was wrong. And so he rented a boom and put like one of those booms (laughs) that go up into the trees so you can like get 
like, I guess, leaves or vegetation way up high. Sure. Um, yeah. So he rented one of those and put a bunch of dry ice up there in the tree canopy. <laughs> and there were no ticks up there. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Oh, I love um, it. So normally I like to do it um, the way that um, most of us do all the time is whenever we have a question, you know, let's just do a small experiment mm-hmm. and see what those results are. And so working with that guy, you know, he was, he was very humble and was just like, okay, you were right. You know, this thing. Um, but yeah, so that's what we do. We try to show them with direct evidence, you know, show the public with direct evidence um, that maybe some of these myths are, are indeed myths, um, but there's, you know, nothing wrong with looking at it again to make sure that it's still, you know, what it is. Yeah, because really understanding their behavior is what we can, when we know that, we know how to keep ourselves safer when we're in the outdoors. Exactly, exactly. And so um, some of the other fun ones um, are that, you know, ticks will attach to you um, immediately where they land on you. And, you know, that's kind of going back to that idea that they're jumping off of vegetation to land on you. And so you know, I'll actually take a tick and show people underneath the microscope or show them, you know, images of ticks and be like, okay, now let's think about, you know, a bunch of different insects and arthropods that do jump. And so we think about grasshoppers that jump, fleas that jump, you know, those things that we all can agree upon that jump. And then we look at their legs and then we look at the tick legs underneath the microscope. And sure enough, those legs do look different. And so they don't really, they can't really jump. And so we talk more about you know, those behaviors about the tick kind of crawling out of the grass and just waiting for you to come by. And, you know, every now and then we get lucky, we can actually find that tick in the field that's waiting for something to come by and we can show them that as well. And so, you know, we can tell them, but I've kind of noticed that really showing, you know, the individual and spending time with them can really change that idea of a myth and kind of move it more to a fact. Oh, that's fascinating. Can you tell our listeners how scientists collect ticks in the field? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's extremely not complicated at all. (laughs) Um, So yeah, so ticks have evolved to find their host, and so we capitalize on that. We use their um, their behavior for them to help them find us is a way to think about it. Um, So the you know tick comes out of the vegetation. It'll come up on a piece of grass and it'll like extend its front legs out. And so um, on the front of their front legs on their, we call that the tarsi at the very end, they have a little organ there and they have claws and they're just waiting for us to come by. Um, I had an undergraduate student who used to call this um, kind of waiting to give you a hug. Um, So they do, they just like reach out their, their front legs and wait for you to come by. And so that's exactly what we do. So we have fabric that we, Um, just kind of drag behind us or beside us and hope that that tick reaches out and grabs onto that um, material. And so we walk for a little bit and check that material about every 10 meters or so and hope that we find a tick on that. And so from there, we, you know, we'll, we'll pick it off and put it in a little tube, maybe with our fingers or with um, some tweezers. Um, But if we get a bunch of ticks, like sometimes we get a bunch of ticks in Tennessee, um, we'll use something like a lint roller to kind of quickly I guess, like attach them to something sticky so they don't get away from us. And then did I hear you correctly that there's an actual organ at the end of their leg at the tarsi? Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. So there, yeah. Um, so this organ's called the Holler's organ. Oh. And it's um, it's basically there as a sensor to wait to um, kind of smell you as you approach. 
That's incredible. Amazing evolution. Yeah. I, I like to think of it as equivalent to a mosquito's antenna. Wow. And, and what they're doing. Yeah. And so when the scientists are out in the field, how are they, what are they doing to protect themselves while they're collecting ticks? Because obviously that seems like a bit of a hazard of the job. It, it is a hazard. When I was an undergrad, one of the things I read um, was that tick collecting was one of the top 10 worst jobs wow. in the country. <laughs> and here I'm doing it, right? <laughs> Sending people out. Um, and a lot of it's because of the hazard associated with it. So I don't want to, you know, downplay this at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and different different laboratories, different states and different areas have different um, guidelines with how um, a lab kind of protects themselves from going out in the field. And so in Tennessee, it gets very hot. We can get easily into the over 90 degrees um, and, and hotter with really, um, I'm sorry, I'm using um, Fahrenheit. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it gets really hot. I think that's and about 25 really, Celsius. <laughs> it gets very humid too. Um, so I have colleagues who have their um, their personnel go out um, in Tyvek suits so that, you know, they're wearing a big white painter type suit. And um, if they, if a tick gets on them, um, they can pick the tick off very easily from that. Um, so for us to wear that type of suit, we would um, very likely sweat to death um, in that and get heat stroke, <laughs> right. which would be a worse risk for us, um, or I guess a higher risk, um, the chance there. And so we do it, um, we protect ourselves the way that we actually recommend others to protect themselves. So foresters in the area, we wear light colored pants that are treated with, um, pre-treated with permanone or some other product um, that would actually repel or kill the ticks. So if they get on us, um, we wear light colored socks that we take our pants and tuck them into. So kind of like tube socks to pull up and over our pants. Um, we'll wear um, shoes that are sprayed down so that we don't get ticks on us and then tuck our shirts in, wear our hair up. Um, kind of do everything that we request others to do is what we do. Oh, that's great. Yeah. What can I you... do wish we could wear those big, you know, Tyvek suits to really protect <laughs> ourselves. But yeah, I'm confident my lab would, re- you know, they would revolt. <laughs> what can you tell us about Lone Star ticks? I don't think we have any here in Canada, but I really d- don't know. You might be getting them soon if you don't already. I'm trying to think about that in the in the literature, mm-hmm. um, at least in the north, or I guess kind of. This would be your southeast um, mm-hmm. area of the country. Um, so we have a lot of Lone Star ticks in Tennessee. And unfortunately, um, if you've been bitten by a tick in Tennessee or just encountered one, that's probably the tick that um, you would get. It's our most abundant tick in the southeastern U.S. It's a very, um, you know, I don't like using people words to describe or characterize ticks, but it's, sometimes it's easier um, to do that. Um, it's a very aggressive tick, meaning that like... Um, I've seen them kind of walk through leaf litter to get to me if I'm sitting down and like having a break. Um, So they'll actually walk towards me. Um, They are large in number. Uh, They're very abundant. They are kind of, they're not really cute like some of the other ticks. I'll say that Um, the females have a little white spot, which is why they're called a lone star tick. And the males have those festoons on the um, the posterior end of them. And the nymphs and the larvae are kind of um, nondescript. But when you encounter a bunch of larvae, um, which we commonly call seed ticks in the area, you're getting anywhere from, you know, 100 on you to, you know, two or 300 on you at a time. Um, and so that's where those lint rollers come in. And so, you know, just like little red things just trying to, to get you, I guess is the best way to describe a Lone Star tick. Yeah, it sounds like they're really efficient at heat seeking if they can just target in on you that quickly. Oh, they are very efficient. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then what is uh, alpha-gal syndrome? Yeah, so alpha-gal is a allergic response that an individual gets after um, being, so let me make sure I say this um, mostly correct. Um, so after an individual is exposed to a tick bite, their immune system is going to respond to that tick bite. And so that tick, while feeding on that individual, is you know salivating, spitting in all sorts of nasty things of which um, some of that's a sugar. Um, and so, you know, the, the human's immune system responds to that and kind of waits later on and kind of heals itself. Um, later on, an individual um, who is bitten by one of those Lone Star ticks, you know, might consume some, some red meat and red meat has alpha-gal in it as well. And so it's an individual who um, previously exposed to Lone Star tick bites um, seem to have a really bad reaction to consuming red meat um, later on. Um, I've heard stories, so I've been very fortunate, knock on you know all sorts of wood, um, to not have experienced this, but some people I've spoken to, you know, they have recovered and others just can't go back to eating red meat at all. Yeah, that's I remember hearing about that for the first time a few years ago. And uh... yes, and and it is one of those things that you know, we didn't know about. And then with science and through discovery, we, we've been able to learn so much more about it. And I'll be honest and say there's a whole lot more to learn about alpha-gal. Mm-hmm. And then as far as another pathogen, what about rickettsia? And are you seeing changes in distribution and occurrence? Oh, rickettsia is um, a personal nemesis, I guess I would say it. Um, Rickettsia is a bacteria that is transmitted by ticks, and it's very common in the southeastern United States. Um, we used to think of it as only being, you know, one species of Rickettsia, Rickettsia rickettsii, causing Rocky Mountain spotted fever, um, primarily transmitted by the American dog ticks. But now we know there's multiple Rickettsia species with multiple Rickettsia vectors. So Lone Star ticks can transmit different Rickettsia, Gulf Coast ticks. Um, American dog ticks. There's, it, it's a, it's a, it's a problem definitely worth studying. And I don't think we know as much about it as we should. I think we have um, a lot more figured out with black-legged ticks and um, Borrelia burgdorferi causing Lyme disease than we do with the rickettsias and spotted fever group rickettsiosis. How can we manage tick populations around our homes and school grounds? Yeah. So, um, ticks don't necessarily, you know, want to be with humans. Um, I would say that they would prefer to be with wildlife, you know, out in the forest. And so, you know, kind of thinking about making an area, um, sadly put, anti-wildlife is a way to think about it, or creating a refuge where wildlife can go, knowing that's an area where um, ticks might likely be. Um, And so if you can create an area that um, doesn't have a lot of humidity, which is you know, kind of hard in Tennessee, but you can remove brush. Um, you can move area where, you know, a mouse or a raccoon would kind of come into and develop a home. You can put fencing up. Fencing could potentially help keep white-tailed deer out, um, things like that. So anything that you can do to kind of make a an area um, not as susceptible to wildlife coming in. And I know that's um, harder I don't even know if it's easy to say. So it's hard to do and hard to say, but also knowing that some of these areas where wildlife actually are um, and being aware so you can do tick checks afterwards, um, I think is an, is an equal strategy in this sense. Um, so sometimes we recommend putting out a, a gravel layer um, around. So potentially about 
you know, three or four feet wide. And I'm using feet again, apologies, about two <laughs> meters wide um, to kind of create a trail of like stone or gravel so that, you know, if a tick does fall off in that area, they're not going to make it. I'm keeping vegetation low. So you know, I, I'm constantly on my, you know, my husband to mow the lawn so that we can keep our tick populations low because we do have a lot of white-tailed deer in Tennessee and a whole bunch in my yard. And so we've noticed just by, you know, keeping the vegetation low, mowing, you know, having an area where the wildlife can be in an area where we can be um, kind of um, d- does minimize our, our tick bites and tick encounters. And it does seem important that parents know about the risk of tick bites. Are you aware of any schools that have policies in place in the event of a tick bite? Or even I'm just sorry. monitoring, I guess, monitoring tick populations? Um, I honestly don't really know. Um, what I do think happens is we have some people who go out and do tick collecting and tick surveillance at different um, school grounds, school properties. Um, and so from there, they relay that information back to the um, the school, I would assume either the um, facility staff or the, the principal. But, you know, most of these um, tick bites, I think, are going to be the same response that um, a person, a parent or guardian would get if a child was you know, hit or stung by a bee. So the individual would remove the tick. Um, ideally, they would keep it. I know we're working here in the state of Tennessee to um, have the, the nurse or individual who removes the tick to save the tick and send it home with the, with the child. Um, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, so it's still a little bit more education on saving it and not just kind of this catch and release that we're um, very used to, to doing. Um, so I don't think we are there yet, but I think we're getting there with just more things like this, um, more information getting shared. I have a a neat story or um, an interesting story where um, my son, I I have a a kid who goes to elementary school, um, was at school and he actually did get a tick on him. It was a American dog tick. And I only know it because he described it to me and he's very familiar with ticks because I, you know, show him the different tick things and the research that I do. Um, and he asked, he found the tick, he showed it to his teacher um, and the teacher removed the tick. And then I believe the teacher either flushed it down the toilet or threw it away. But either way, the tick did not come home um, with, with my child. Um, from there, the nurse called and said, you know, hey, you know, your child got a tick on you or a tick on him. Um, just wanted to let you know, you know, to monitor the signs. And so there was a little bit there um, in the sense of, you know, removing and, um, and acknowledging what occurred. And so, you know, me being who I am, you know, I called back and, and spoke to the individual and said, you know, next time, you know, let's, let's save it. Use, let's use one of those mm-hmm. mini Ziploc bags you have, put the date on it and send it home with the individual along with some information um, about what could happen and what signs to look for, what symptoms to look for should um, anything um, have happened. You know, now luckily the tick hadn't fed very long um, at all on my, my child. Um, but it is something that that does happen, and it's something that we need to acknowledge. Yeah, that's such a good example, and I, I agree. I think um, it would be really wonderful to develop, you know, a template for those policies so that people can adapt them um, for their own schools or outdoor education programs, camps. I know sometimes they have policies in place, too. Yeah, absolutely. Really yes, my, my child's always at some kind of um, outdoor camp during the summer or fall mm-hmm. break, and and yes, and so I always talk with the staff there, you know, what's your tick prevention policy because of who I am. Right. Um, but, you know, sharing those with others would be um, pretty smart to do. I think. Yeah. 
Now, is there any emerging research that you're excited about? Um, yeah, so we actually have kind of, I don't want to say changed gears, but changed a little bit of focus um, in the tick world, I guess in Tennessee, primarily because of the Asian longhorn tick, Haemophysalis longicornis. Um, are you all familiar with this tick at all? I am not, no, but... Uh... That's good. You don't <laughs> want to become familiar okay. with it. Um, this is a tick whose um, biology and ecology is very similar to the Lone Star tick. Um, it's very abundant in numbers. It, you know, kind of comes out at the same time period. So for us, it's, you know, from spring break to fall break, it's, it's out in the fields. Um, but what's really um, emerging problem with this tick is its idea that it can go from egg to adult in um, one year. So most of the time our ticks take two to three years to go from egg to an adult. Um, but this tick, the Asian longhorn tick, can do it in one year. Um, and we have collected over 15,000 of these ticks in Tennessee, and it's we've yet to find a male. Um, oh, so wow. this tick is actually parthenogenic. It doesn't um, need a male to mate and have offspring. And so it's a huge concern for us in the state of Tennessee because um, it's feeding on cattle and can potentially you know, transmit different pathogens to cattle. Um, and in areas where this tick is indigenous, so... Um, in Southeast Asia, it has the ability to transmit a number of um, different nasty pathogens to, to humans as well. Um, we've been very fortunate in the United States that it hasn't been transmitting, at least to our knowledge, um, any pathogens to humans. But, you know, we're, we're constantly looking at this tick, talking about this tick and um, developing these prevention detection responses for um, this tick species as well. So this is our kind of new new tick on the block. There's a way to think about it. <laughs> I find, uh, no, I, you know, I was reading your paper, which we'll post uh, on the, in the show notes as well. But I, I noticed that and it said no males found. I was like, what, what's that mean? <laughs> so that yeah. is, yeah, the new <laughs> take on it, the block. Um, you know, when I talk to my producers, I'm in the state of Tennessee, so my, uh, my cow-calf producers, you know, I tell them that it's kind of like an aphid. So if we ignore it, the tick numbers will get out of control very quickly. So aphids, you know, are kind of the same thing. They just grow in numbers so quickly that you can quickly become overwhelmed. Um, but we've been really lucky to have some producers who've been working with us um, and identifying some of these, you know, tick management, um, I guess, strategies that we use for lone star ticks that we use for black-legged ticks are also working for this Asian longhorn tick. And so very excited that some of the things we're already doing right. um, is, is potentially working. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I yeah. want to thank you so much, Dr. Becky, for your time. I can tell that your classroom is a really fun and engaging place to learn. And I really appreciate you taking the time to teach us today. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you for having me. And anytime you want to talk ticks, I'm here. Okay. <laughs> We are two years into this podcast and we are still learning lots of new things. Today, I learned about the Heller's organ at the end of the tick's leg, as well as about the new tick on the block, the Asian longhorn tick. So let's keep learning everyone and let's remember, stay safe in the outdoors. Mm -hmm.